Welcome to the faculty podcast at RTS Washington, D.C. I am obviously not Dr. Scott Red. Dr. Scott Red, our president, is off in California doing, we assume, presidential things. He tells us he's doing presidential things over there, uh, and we will welcome him back uh, this evening, and he'll be teaching his classes throughout the week. But I do have here uh, a good collection of scholars nonetheless. I've got Dr. Peter Lee, Professor of Old Testament and Dean of Students here at our campus. We've got Gray Sutanto, Professor of Systematic Theology in the flesh here again, uh, joining us at uh, in, in Washington, D.C. Glad to have him here. And uh, Dr. Paul Jean, Pastor at New City Presbyterian Church and Professor of New Testament here at RTS Washington. I thought today, since uh, we're we're missing our fearless leader, uh, we would do a grab bag of questions. One of the things that we do in the podcast is call folks to ask their questions. We love to. Uh, we are a seminary, and we love to wrestle with new ideas and and think through uh, both issues old and new. And so we have um, all collected some questions over the years and over the course of the podcast and that we'd uh, throw them out. So in no particular order, we've got, we've got a list here. We'll see how many we cover. And I'm just going to throw out questions to our, to our panel, to our distinguished scholars that we have here, and we'll, we'll see how things play out. So one frequent question uh, that we get uh, in our in our classes in response to um, podcasts has been, does God change? So this question actually arises out of kind of some of the biblical language. It's been circulating in the theological world for a while, um, particularly when we think about how the Bible talks about God repenting or uh, relenting from the the disaster that he had promised, I guess, I think most particularly like Jonah, where you've got this, um, in yet three days, God will destroy the city. The people repent. God relents. Jonah complains. You know, you've got these this theme in Scripture of God re- relenting from the promised plan. How do we think about that and particularly map that onto the language of immutability or impassibility? Mm-hmm. Thanks so much for that, Tommy. And this is definitely a question that comes up in Systematic Theology 1, where we cover the doctrine of God, that particular class. We talk about scripture, theology proper, and anthropology. So in the second section, we spend a good 6 to 12 hours just on divine simplicity, the doctrine that says that God is not composed of parts, that God, everything that is in God is identical with who he is, and hence there is no real distinction, for example, between God's goodness and God's justice and God's wisdom and so on, all these attributes of God really refer to one thing, that God is God and that everything that is in God is, again, identical to God. God is not composite, but rather simple. He is one and absolutely so. And so the question becomes then, how does God's divine simplicity, which I think is taught very clearly in Scripture in reference to the divine name, that God is who he is. He says to Moses that I am who I am, for example, which means that that everything that is in God refers back to God himself. There's nothing outside of God that causes him to be. There's nothing outside of God that causes God to be moved, as if God is a reactive God in a give-and-take relationship to the world. There's also nothing outside of God that God needs to overcome or achieve in order for him to be whatever he is. So God is good by virtue of being good, 
not that he is doing something that causes him to be good, unlike us, right? I always say to my students, in order for you to become good, you need to achieve particular things, and hence you develop, you change, and hence you acquire the attribute of goodness, because goodness is something outside of you rather than something intrinsic to who you are. If anybody comes to you and says, I am goodness personified, you would laugh and joke, unless he's Peter Lee. No, I'm just joking. You would laugh and, and you would see that, you know, you're not God. You're made in his image. And so God is good, but you are good insofar as you acquire particular um, skills and, and attributes and so on, as you try to image God in your own mm. life. So does God change that? This is a, a difficult question in some sense, but the, the short answer is no. He does not change because God is simple. There was never a point in time where God was not good and then he became good. There was never a point of time where God was not wise and then he became wise, but God is outside of time altogether and he has all these attributes. So what about all those passages where it says that God was angered and then he became, let's mm -hmm. say, merciful, mm -hmm. right? Tommy mentioned uh, Jonah. We can also think about Ephesians chapter 2, that there seems to be a real transition there between God's wrath that he was pouring out to those who are by, by nature children of wrath, walking in our sins, to mercy, where God now is pouring out mercy to those who are repentant in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4 onwards. So how does that all comport together? What I would say in, in my classes is I would draw from the Reformed scholastic theologian, Hisbertus Futius, 17th century Reformed scholastic, and he talked about this particular uh, point that, that though God is immutable and simple, he doesn't change. There is a real transition from wrath to grace, but not as if God changes, but because we have changed. Now, how does that work? He says, consider the sun. The sun has one particular effect on the world, right? The sun has a particular beam of, of light, which is very hot or warm. And the way in which we receive the sun is dependent upon um, the state of the thing receiving the sun's effects. Okay, so there's only one light, but if it's hitting, for example, a rock, it would cause the rock to be hot. But if it hits a puddle of water, it would dry up the puddle of water. So the sun, which has one particular light, can have two effects, but it's not as if the sun changes, hmm. but it's because the object that it hits changes from a rock, say, to a puddle of water. So the sun, we can say, um, heats up and then the sun also dries up, but it's not the sun that changes, but the object that changes. And so what Futius begins to say is that wrath and mercy is actually traceable back to God's goodness. God's goodness is what we might call an absolute attribute of God and wrath and mercy are relative attributes of God, but the relative attributes are not changes in God, but rather it's how the object receives the singular goodness of God. So when a person is sinful and is committing sins, giving himself over to sins and so on, he necessarily always receives the goodness of God as wrath. But when that sinner repents, right, and receives Christ in faith, then he would receive the goodness of God as mercy. So it's not as if God that changes, but as a sinner that changes. Mm. And how he receives that singular goodness of God is hence one. That's really helpful too to think about how God's wrath and God's mercy are not opposed. As a good God... His holiness must react in wrath towards God's, uh, um, uh, the sinners against God and God's enemies and so on. But once we repent, right, God will definitely have, uh, will be gracious to us because he is faithful to his own word. He is faithful to his own promises. He says that if we repent, we will receive 
um, the covenant blessings that, that God has promised us in Jesus Christ. So God does not change. And God's relative attributes are God's effects, the effects of God's goodness towards his creatures, right? Uh, rather than changes within God himself. So I think this is a, a pretty long-ish answer to that question, and we spend much more time on it in class. Um, but that's it's such one... an easy question. I don't know why it's such it an easy question. so many words to right. answer it. God doesn't change. So yeah. that's a short answer. That's a shorter answer to that. So it's interesting. Like Jonah, if you go back to Jonah, like the, you know, his response to God is, I knew you were like this. You know, it's not that you, know, you changed your mind. That's not Jonah's accusation. It's I knew you were a merciful and faithful God. Right. Numbers 23, 19, you know, that God is not like a man that he yeah. should change his mind. There is no shadow of turning or, or change in God. You know, James says, so all these passages ground whatever changes we perceive, not in God, but rather in us and how we receive that, that goodness. Great. I just love listening to you, even though you don't believe me. <laughs> it is always so enriching. Let me ask you a follow-up question. Um, so I think this explanation is, uh, is, very, is very helpful. Do you think there is a part, I guess some theologians call this the doctrine of mystery, yeah. where maybe there is some part of this we can't explain because of mystery so could you comment on that there's definitely lots of mysteries here um and we can't ultimately explain it i think that the sun analogy from futius mm -hmm. goes a long way in trying to make this you know more comprehensible to the human mind but it is definitely mysterious you know how does an eternal unchanging god relate to temporal creatures um in one sense we can say there's clear biblical guidelines and boundaries that you cannot say god has changed we can't say that we have received wrath at one point but when we repent we receive god's goodness in, in in terms of mercy and i think common human logic would would say you know if god changes uh, sorry if god doesn't change then means that you know um god is static or something like that and so god would not care about us but that's not the way in which scripture presents god god is unchanging and yet that immutability is not a hindrance to us relating to him but rather something that benefits us because god doesn't change god never is a fickle god god never is going to leave us when we do something wrong but rather you know what he gives to us he gives out of his pure benevolence um there is no um uh, risk of envy on god's part no risk of loss at all and hence this is a giver who asks of us nothing when he elects to give something to us so that's an incredible gift i think but yes so it goes against human logic or at least common human intuitions because we relate with creatures in the world with give and take relationships and so part of the task of theology is purifying our sense of worldliness because we're talking about a god who is beyond how would you then talk about like creation. to somebody who's you know why then do i pray why then do i why should I repent? Um, it, it, does God have, pastorally, does, does God genuinely respond to my actions in space and time? Or is, is everything sort of immutably decided before I've ever done any good or bad? Yes. Um, so, <laughs> so everything has been decreed. I think we have to be clear about that. But yeah. we can't say that God does respond to prayer but he doesn't respond to prayer the way that creatures respond how do creatures respond to requests 
we would probably say, oh, wow, I didn't know that you would request that. Oh, wow, I didn't know that you needed that from me. But God knows exactly what we need. And he always responds in ways that 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 exceeds our expectations. And, and perhaps even he responds in ways that uh, at times contradict what we prayed for because we don't know what we ought to have prayed for. So And so God's responsiveness is not a reciprocal give and take surprise and here it is sort of uh, a response, but rather it's a response to something that, that he himself has decreed for us to do. It's a response according to his promises. Um, why does God prompt Jonah to go to Nineveh in the first place? It's because he knew exactly what would happen if God were, were to prompt him, that he would want to give mercy to the Ninevites. It's not as if he didn't know that the Ninevites would repent, right? But rather, he called the Ninevites to repent. He warned them through Jonah, and that's why he called Jonah. And Jonah anticipated that, like you said, Tommy. Jonah knew that if he just preached this and that they were that God would be merciful. This was the plan of God all along. Great. Well, let me ask another follow-up question to that because I think it's great. Um, what you're saying. Expect so, nothing less from you, Paul. So with that, then, so you use the example of the Ninevites, but then this question is off the list. Uh, Moses is called to uh, tell Pharaoh, let my people go. Mm-hmm. And also the text makes clear that God hardened his heart. Mm-hmm. Right? So if a, if a person that's actually genuinely trying to make sense of scripture were to ask, how then does God hold Pharaoh responsible? Because he had, just using the example you used with Jonah, well, if he had already ordained it, then how, how would you explain to someone sovereignty and divine sovereignty and human responsibility? Yeah, that's a fantastic question. And it's in fact an objection that Paul himself anticipates in Romans chapter 9, right? If God had ordained all things, why then does he hold us responsible or accountable? And and Paul's answer, you know, unsatisfying it might be initially to our ears, is that who are you, man, to question back to God? If God were to ordain Pharaoh to be this sort of vessel, a vessel of his wrath rather than a vessel of his mercy, then should the clay say to the pot maker you know what have you done but rather we have to submit to the lord's will but i think one sort of you know theological philosophical explanation to the problem of or the perceived problem of human responsibility and divine sovereignty is is that god does not need to actively cause us to sin right our because of original sin we will naturally desire sin and and all God has to do to quote unquote harden Pharaoh's heart is to let his restraining grace go of Pharaoh's heart. And Pharaoh would run headlong towards his own sins. Mm-hmm. And so in Romans chapter one, it says that in God's wrath, God gives us over to our desires. So the hardening is not an active sort of causation. The reformed uh, theologians have always uh, talked about an asymmetry between God's causation of goodness on the one hand and God's causation of Uh, evil on the other hand. God never actively causes evil. He's not the author of sin, but rather he restrains our hearts and causes us to do good. And if he lets go of that restraint and wrath, we will run headlong uh, towards sin. Calvin has a wonderful analogy of this. He talks about the sun once again. He says that when a sun gives its light to a dead body, a corpse, it actually causes the corpse to have a foul stench. But we cannot say that the stench comes from the sun. It comes only from the dead body, even though we can say that the sun causes 
this the stench to arise. So in terms of causation, the stench still does that. But in terms of the source of evil, the source of stench, it could only come from the corpse. And so as we are dead in sins, that is how uh, our sins arise as well. When God um, lifts his restraint, we inevitably run headlong because of our total depravity. I wonder if that's embedded even in the confessional standards. You don't see, you'll see the language of cause show up in the confessional standards, but when it, when, but God is not the author of evil. Right. And it won't use the word cause to right. talk about God's relationship with evil. It uses words like ordain. Right. Or decrees to permit yeah. or something like that. So we do need to be careful about causative language because it is an ambiguous term. Uh, there's there's different ways of causation, and and God's causation of evil and sin is not the same as his causation of good. Yeah. I want this to be a kind of grab bag of questions, and so I want and and Peter, you've been a bit quiet, but I've got a frequently asked question that 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 will speak. Well, I mean, you guys are not letting me get a word in edgewise. We fixed it. We solved it over here. Oh, I see. Well, all right. Well, hey, we've got one. We've got one for you. Combined immutability. I think solved. I think you'll be you'll be fit for this one. Um, I'll just put it in all of its starkness. Why study the Old Testament? I mean, if we've got the the New Testament, we've got the end of the story. We've got Jesus risen, new creation. It is finished. Why do we Why do we still need the Old Testament? Um, I'm offended by the question. Okay, well. <laughs> no, I'm not offended by the question. It's it's totally, you know, I get it. Um, you know, you read the Old Testament and it's, uh, you know, it's so long ago. Who knows how long, depending on how you answer some of these uh, uh, dating questions. Uh, you know, half the people you're not, well, the majority of people you have no relationship with. You can hardly pronounce their names. Uh, it's described in an ancient world uh, culturally that is very distant you know, uh, than, than the world that we live in today. Um, you know, it's an understandable question that people would ask. In fact, the um, first lecture in, in the first Old Testament class that I teach is exactly dealing with this question. Why do we have to study the Old Testament? It's, that's exactly the title of the, uh, of the lecture. I, I have just come back from sabbatical, so I haven't done that lecture in a while, so I don't quite recall <laughs> exactly <laughs> what I say. The reason why I have it on paper is so I don't have to remember, you see. Yeah, this is yeah. the reason why I carry around my Bible, so I don't have to memorize yeah. the Bible, you see. So, uh, But it, but uh, some of the things... Just, just to clarify, Peter's position does not represent that. <laughs> it, it's my curmudgeonly nature coming out again. Anyhow, the uh, you know there there are definitely uh, reasons. First, um, you know the Old Testament is just as theological uh, as as the as the New. When when Paul is uh, writing in the major, as you all know, and as you guys all know. Uh, he makes all sorts of Old Testament allusions uh, to really Ooh. fully understand Paul, and not just Paul, but the New Testament as a whole, the book of Revelation. Um, Hebrews, you, you know, we, you can't really understand Hebrews unless you understand Leviticus and, and the whole Mosaic Code. Um, even the language of creation, and, uh, or excuse me, salvation, Paul will use creation language, which is borrowing from the book of Genesis. To, to really understand, in other words, to understand the New Testament in its in its most fullest revealed glory, you really have to understand the the Old Testament context because they are referring to it um, all um, uh, all all of the time. 
you know, the Old Testament covers a whole large uh, chunk of period of historical time, a whole lot more than the New. Uh, you know, depending on, again, how you want to date some of these texts you're talking in the New Testament, maybe generation or two. Um, you know, let's, you know, just uh, conservatively, let's start with Moses as sort of a beginning point. Uh, well, no, let's start with Abraham, about 2000 yeah. B.C. to Ezra Nehemiah, let's give or take 500, 400, that's 1500, 1600 years um, uh, of, of history, a lot more time for uh, what you see God doing for his people in a historical period that you can really tap into. In fact, Paul even says exactly this, I think, in um, Romans uh, 15, uh, verse 3, if I recall, where he says that the Old Testament was written to give you hope. You see, if God does these things with uh, sinful people in the past, uh, then, of course, he can do something for us in our kind of state and plight even um, uh, uh, even now. The the Old Testament deals with a whole lot more life crisis scenarios. Uh, you've got, um, you know, uh, marital issues. You've got uh, uh, covenant crises. You've got uh, uh, sibling rivalries. You have uh, national crises. I mean, you've just got so many more scenarios that is dealt with uh, thoroughly, covenantally in the Old Testament than uh, that. that if you didn't have it, it really would take away from so much of the uh, the benefits that we have of not just uh, of God, but how God relates to mm -hmm. uh, to yep. His people. I think people forget oftentimes just how. Uh, and one of the goals I have is to, is to is to remind people just how eminently practical Old Testament uh, instruction is. Um, uh, it encourages us and gives us instruction on godly marriage, uh, uh, wisdom on how to live wisely, to kind of maneuver through all of the kind of uh, 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 landmines in life and how to do that in a way that is uh, that is honoring to God as well as loving to others. The Ten Commandments comes from the Old Testament. How to love your spouse, uh, a lot of that uh, you see uh, illustrated within the Old Testament. Abraham, an Old Testament patriarch, is looked at as the father and the example of faith. It, it, to ignore all of that, which, and I know that there are some who will just sort of swear off the Old Testament, you know, it's, it, uh, is, is, is depriving God's people of a, a treasure trust yeah. of revelation, instruction, theology, uh, and good godly uh, ways to live life. Mm -hmm. Which is why, and remember, Paul refers to the Old Testament as the scriptures. Yeah, yeah, yeah every, every book of every gospel in some way, begins with a nod to the Old Testament. Matthew starts with this genealogy. Mark with, the, you know... The with, Genesis 1. Yeah, and then um, John with, uh, in the beginning... Each of them kind of lodges the story of Jesus in this pre-existing narrative. You're coming alongside of, a, of an already... A story that's already begun. Amen. Peter, I promise to... Uh, my kids, I would ask you this question, two questions. They want to know when Job took place relative to the Old Testament, <laughs> and then who wrote it? Okay, well, uh, the second question of who wrote Job, I, I don't. The, the simple answer is I don't know who wrote Job. You know, Jewish tradition is Moses wrote Job, but that probably is unlikely. I thought God wrote it. 
<laughs> I, I apologize. I, I stand corrected. God wrote Job. Well, specifically, the Spirit of God inspired the writing of Job through some unknown human author. Um, is, that, is that okay? I, I approve. Uh, in terms of the uh, historical setting of Job, now that's a little trickier because, um, you know, the, the lifestyles, you know, kind of the bartering system, some of the things that you read about in Job in the narrative does seem to read old, like like Abraham time. The the reference to some of the uh, Gentilic people groups, Sabaeans and others, is clearly not Abraham. I mean, that, that really is uh, first uh, millennium people groups. So there's some confusion then in terms of what's going on there. Uh, I think what we have in Job is, um, you know, a narrative that was kind of written very, rather late, you know, uh, who knows how late, exilic, perhaps post-exilic. I don't think that's on, on uh, it, it's very possible. But the narrative was written given a Abrahamic context. And that's uh, the reason why we have, it's sort of analogous to us, you know, writing a novel today uh, about medieval Europe. Uh, it's not medieval Europe now, but you know you can write something from an ancient context and that's sort of what, what we have I think in Job is a, a, a literary work that was contemporary to a certain historical period, but the narrative itself is presuming an ancient context. Mm. So. Mm. But when you say literary work, you still mean we should take Job as something that actually happened? Yeah, I do think so. I think there was a historic Job. Uh, it may have been embellished a little bit for uh, for uh, argument's sake, uh, uh, for wisdom instructions, but but uh, most likely there was an actual Job um, you know, from the land of Uz, which I think was uh, considered Edomite. So, you know, the wisdom traditions in the ancient world is widespread. Israel was just one part of a larger wisdom tradition, although that's being challenged, but of a wisdom tradition that was in Egypt, you know, Babylon, Edom, supposedly Edomites must have had a very prominent wisdom tradition since some of these wisdom names came from Edomite territories. Uh, uh, Assyria, there was records of Babylonian Assyrian wisdom literature, uh, uh, Aramaic wisdom literature. It, again, it, it was just a common thing that was done in the Book of Job is just kind of one example. Of so, so I've got one for you. I, I'm looking at our our list of questions here, and I think we can only do one more. But what you just said kind of ra- gravitates towards one of them. I'd love to hear you talk a little bit. Actually, about I want to hear what you think about it. Well, I can't ask and answer my own questions. So you've got to at least start. Uh, all right. This well, is what well, they teach in like leading Bible studies. You're not supposed to answer your own questions. Uh, okay. <laughs> Maybe, or Greg can start, or, or Paul can start, but the question, and I think you know where I'm going, is the, the kind of the necessity of Bible backgrounds for understanding some of these biblical books. So you, yeah. you know, you're talking about the genre of Job, and this is a thing, and this is, um, uh, you know, I, I get it from a New Testament perspective a lot in terms of genre, backgrounds to Acts, you know, a lot of, a lot of these kinds of questions arise. How necessary is it, or is it necessary at a fundamental level, to understand the historical backgrounds of a book or a section of text in order to really understand that text that we're reading? That's, that's a great question, Tommy. What do you think? <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a, Okay, so those are two different questions. Because okay. one is, I think the question that's asked a lot is, how much background do I need to know 
to understand the basic message of the gospel versus um, how much background do I need to know to understand the specific text, right? I think those would be a little bit different. Yeah, okay, so how, how are they different? Well, Tommy, that's why we have you to <laughs> address such difficult questions. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Tommy, what do you think? Okay, okay, well, th- thanks for asking, guys. I really appreciate this. This is a very natural uh, movement of the discussion. This is how conversations happen here all the time. Mm-hmm. Oh, Dr. Red, where are thou? Well, y'all, uh, p- please respond. Um, but uh, I guess the kind of how th- that distinction between the gospel message and individual text, I think, is a, is a good one. Um, obviously, the 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 question rubs up against like the perspicuity of scripture. And is scripture clearly understood uh, and, and understandable on its own grounds? And from a fundamental perspective, we want to say yes. But also look at how the standards carefully qualify that, that it's by a due use of ordinary means. It's the basic message of the gospel, as Paul, as you put it, um, that not all thing and not all scriptures are going to be equally clear. Um, we need to balance it with a scripture interpret scripture principle. There's all these various nuances and qualifications that need to to be made there. Um and I think in particular, like the one that I go back to over and over again when we're talking about like the ancient Near East and Job and difficult texts and historical narratives like Acts and the Gospels and the way those genres work in the ancient world is the due use of ordinary means. Um, in ordinary communication and any kind of conversation that we're engaged in, you have a huge background of presuppositions and context that allows you to f- understand what's going on there. Um, it's why you have to kind of sometimes talk down to kids is because they don't have as much knowledge, background knowledge about the world. And, and you've got to kind of fill in the gaps and you can't burden them as much with, with language because they just don't have those presuppositions that you have. Similarly with the biblical text, there's a lot of things that the that authors assume that you already know. I think about Acts and the fact that James pops up in Acts 15 as this known figure. He's never introduced in the book of Acts. James is um, you know, this guy, and he's the brother of Jesus, and here's how he came to... Pro- None of that background is, in, is, is given to us. He just arrives on the narrative as a really important person with many mahogany bookshelves, and you've just got to figure out why he's, he's there, what's going on. Well, Luke thinks you know all that because you're familiar with the story. You're familiar with your tradition. Um, and we, so far removed from the text, need to kind of fill in the gaps and ask those kind of background questions. Can we understand what's going on in Acts 15 without knowing all the details about James's life and his conversion and uh, how he arose to prominence and was referred to as an apostle? Yeah, we can still get the message there. Would that help us to better appreciate and understand this man that Paul calls a pillar uh, of uh, of leadership? Yeah, it would, it would be nice. Um, so that kind of balance of the core is understandable and yet the background background information is nevertheless necessary as a due use of ordinary means it's kind of how i'd frame the discussion yeah i think there's a parallel between you know the question of historical backgrounds to the question of 
you need grammar to understand the biblical yeah. text? Do you need philosophy to understand the biblical text? And the answer is always, it's necessary, but not sufficient, right? You can know all the background material, all the, the, the nuances of Greek grammar and Hebrew grammar and all the philosophy in the world, and therefore actually understand the gospel message or the main redemptive historical message of, of the gospels and, and, and the whole Bible. But at the same time, you need grammar. It presupposes grammar in a lot of ways. You need philosophy. You need to know how logic works to understand Paul's argumentation, even Jesus's parables, the use of irony and things like that. So you have to use it. And I think one of the responses is to say that we need historical backgrounds because of our doctrine of divine inspiration. God uses personalities, histories of the individual authors to produce the Bible. It doesn't just drop out of, the, out of heaven, right? And it's really what distinguishes Christianity from Islam. Islam, which says in the, at least the Sunni Orthodox tradition, says that the Bible really did just sort of drop out of heaven. It's, it's really an Arabic inscription of what is an eternal heavenly tablet. Yeah. And in that respect, technically speaking, Muhammad is not an author of the Bible. I mean, sorry, of the Quran, but rather, you know, he's merely just a vehicle to, to transmit this heavenly tablet uh, that's been inscribed from eternity past. So, you know, even though the Quran is very much about and contextualized under Muhammad's life, technically speaking, Muhammad's life is not uh, directly relevant for the Quran, theologically speaking. Now, there's been a lot of debate about that, and a lot of actual, you know, modern Islamic scholars have actually argued that the Bible has a rich history of textual criticism, of biblical background, because of our doctrine of inspiration, mm. whereas lots of Islamic scholars have resisted textual criticism and historical understandings of the Quran because of their doctrine of uh, um, the inspiration of how the Quran came to be, not even doctrine of inspiration, but the direct sort of transmission of the Quran. So very different doctrines of inspirations. And I think Christians would do well to, to remember that God uses history and history is not antithetical to God, but, but God uh, utilizes yeah. it. In fact, in fact, our religion is uniquely historical. It matters. You know, Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians 15, that it matters that Jesus came at a certain time, died a certain way, rose three days later. Those are all fundamental characteristics of our religion our religion is a historical event not a set of propositions yeah right. i think the one thing i would add is not just the historical background which is absolutely important but also the literary background uh that mm -hmm. the scriptures have written that is you know i mean when we start to do literary analyses the unfortunate uh reaction within uh conservative circles is to uh you know, say, oh, then you deny historicity because all you're doing is studying the Bible as literature. Well, I, I get why people would think that, but that's not a necessary conclusion. But And it's unfortunate because it is a helpful uh, thing to keep in mind, the, the rich literary background and, the, and the, uh, uh, the available resources that the Lord used to inscripturate his word uh, within its historical, uh, within its historical context. And so... I guess the one, I mean, I know we're running out of time, but the one uh, 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 illustration I've often used is, uh, you know, is, you know, I have a very close friend who's like a car aficionado. He knows everything about cars, all the details and intricacies. I don't know anything about cars. When I see a car, I just drive the thing. I just want it to work. But if he had the time, he could put that thing together from scratch. And, 
And uh, I'd like to think of scripture sort of like that. You know the gospel. You know a car by when you see a car. You know the gospel when you hear the gospel. It is as clear as day. You, you can read Romans from beginning to end, which you know we ought to, and one sitting, and and the message of the gospel is as clear as day. You know, salvation by Christ alone, or by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But yet to really appreciate the intricacies of that, you know, you have to dig into it and appreciate the historical background, the, the literary background, the allusions to the Old Testament, yeah. or even the Greco-Roman context that, or Semitic background that, you know, Paul is, uh, uh, is writing and utilizing. And, and that just makes, you know, biblical studies at that really minute academic level. I don't know, for lack of a better word, it makes it fun. It just makes it exciting and it really enriching. So, well, this great is, analogy. You know, this is why I love these kinds of conversations and sitting around and chatting about these things from our different from our different perspectives. So, thank you all for being here uh, for this discussion. This is I've, I've I've tried to sub in for Doctor Red poorly, uh, but nevertheless, uh, it is great to have you all and. For those of you listening, we're glad that you could join us. Please do like and subscribe um, and pray for safe travels for Scott uh, as he comes back to us and joins us again uh, next week for the Faculty Podcast. If you have any questions that you'd like us to address, please do send them um, to us. You can find a link for that in the show notes. And until that time, farewell. Farewell.